1450 WKXL 103.9 FM, our signal in the Capital Region, 101.9 FM, booming into the uh, Manchester area. It's Kale and Company. We are presented by Weed Family Automotive. They're located at 124 Store Street in Concord. You can give them a call at 603-225-7988 or you can make an appointment online if you'd like at weedfamilyautomotive.com. And joining us on this edition of Kale & Company is the Executive Director of the New Hampshire Institute of Politics at St. Anselm College and a world-class outdoorsman, Neil Levesque. Neil, how are you today? Well, with that kind of introduction, how could I not have a great day? But uh, thank you for the, uh, the puffy resume, but I appreciate that. And uh, happy to be on, Ken. Well, Neil, always great to have you on the show. And anything new in the outdoor world? Have you been doing uh, much hunting uh, recently? I haven't, um, but I've been training. I'm going to go into uh, Denali National Park on a solo backcountry trip for several days in June. And wow, uh, yeah. So I'm I've, I'm learning about things like bear spray and uh, stuff you can do. So Denali's the size of New Hampshire. Um, and, uh, there are no trails and so you, it's, you're on your own. So we'll see what happens. It's going to be pretty much, uh, (laughs) my wife is a little skeptical of the entire thing. So, well, you're, you're a better man than, than I, Neil Levesque for uh, challenging Denali or is Denali challenging you? I don't, I don't know which way it goes, but, uh, well, uh, the reason we're, we're convened today is, you know, to talk a little politics for the most part. And uh, uh, your thoughts on uh, President Biden's first uh, State of the Union address? Well, um, you know, the interesting thing is, is, just for everybody listening, is I try to, we're a bipartisan institution down here, and, and I try to sort of uh, criticize both sides and praise both sides. So just going into it, I, you know, I think the first thing was that I thought it was much more of a uh, a healthier speech for America than it has been in the last several years, meaning that with uh, one notable exception, you know, the crowd was in the crowd, the, the members of Congress that were in the audience and other people were generally uh, friendly and, uh, you know, it wasn't the, the type of nastiness that we've seen uh, since really the Obama administration. Um, but if I could sum it up, I'd say this. He, it was almost as if he had written and, and, and spoke two different speeches. And maybe they were written by two separate people and sort of come, come together. Maybe the first speech was what he was going to do. And then with what's been going on in Ukraine, uh, they added a whole front section to it. But it was definitely two different types of speakers. Uh, the first part being the Ukraine, where he definitely wrapped um, the United States and obviously himself around this idea of freedom and freedom fighters and what the Ukrainian people were standing up for. And there was a lot of joint uh, praise for that part of the speech. A lot of people in the audience, conservatives, liberals, they definitely rallied behind that. And so I thought that that was good. And it was almost as if at that point he should kind of stop but then the second part of the speech came in. And so then we saw uh, a criticism pointedly of the previous administration, to which got some boos. Uh, and then this 
so sort of um, what I what I refer to as sort of uh, state of the union grocery list, where right. everything gets sort of thrown into a grocery bag and named off, and some of us start to nod off uh, on that part of the speech. But so that was really well how we'd sum it up um, from my perspective. Yeah, and uh, you know, and as you mentioned, this is you know true for many of the State of the Union addresses that uh, we have witnessed over the years. Uh, but to me, uh, you know, and, and you just you just mentioned it, you just brought it up. Seemed like uh, long on wishes and short on how to make those wishes a reality. That's right, and you know, so when you pivot from this sort of rallying about behind the idea of America. Uh, for people who are fighting for their freedom against this terrible Russian army and terrible Vladimir Putin, and then you quickly shift into the jab, and then all of a sudden you become the partisan Democrat from the podium. And I think at that point, the criticism comes with some of the sort of things that he mentioned. Um, you know, the speech, the, the New York Times this morning sort of highlighted a speech outlined spending plans to fight inflation, spending plans to fight inflation, which, you know, he has not acknowledged, I think, that the some of the major spending bills and some of the opponents who said this is going to cause inflation uh, are certainly sort of uh, being deemed correct at this point, and that so much money coming into the economy has caused this type of inflation. He still blames um, uh, the, the uh, supply lines. And then last night he said that what we need to do is lower costs. And so I think that if you were somebody who understands business, maybe you own a small business, uh, maybe you're just trying to make your business that you work for run, you understand that it's not as easy when a politician or a president says, you just need to lower your costs. I mean, it's almost like an impossibility. I mean, I think about it in your own family. All we need to do if we need more money is lower our costs. Well, you know, spaghetti and meatballs cost so much. So I think part of that, he went into this grocery bag sort of list of things, and that's why I think his, his numbers probably, a lot of people probably dropped off at that point. Um, the thing I was worried about was in the beginning if he had... You know, in our partisan country these days, uh, if you have a, a Republican stand up, half the country sort of turns away and just doesn't like that, whatever they're saying. doesn't matter what they're saying. And if the same things are said by a Democrat, half the country, the Republicans sort of turn away and don't like what they say. You could say the same thing. And in this country where we're so divided, we're actually not that far apart on a lot of policy matters. But it seems that we're far apart when it comes to uh, the red and the and and the blue. And so, um, I was worried that when he got up and he talked about Ukraine, that a lot of there would just be booing of that, and a lot of people would turn away if they were not of his party. But I think that that's not what happened, and I do think it was a rallying point that I hope would potentially continue. You know, when he spoke of Ukraine at the uh, top of his speech uh, last night. Uh, it was as if, to me anyway, as a viewer, and uh, you know, not especially well versed in in international politics and all that sort of thing. But 
it seemed to me he was almost talking about Ukraine in the past tense, like it wasn't still going on. And we know it's still very much uh, going on. But I, I thought he spoke of it like, you know, it, it was over. Did you get that impression at all? Somewhat. And, you know, he may know something that we don't know. Uh, or they may be looking in, into the crystal ball saying there's no way that the Ukrainians can withstand this kind of abuse as soon as Putin ramps it up. And, and I think Putin's one of these people that's not going to get embarrassed uh, and humiliated with a defeat, even if it means killing civilians or ramping this up to a degree with chemical weapons or otherwise to so that he just basically smothers them. But um, there is a, a saying in the art of war that you should create a golden bridge, essentially, for your opponent to, to exit, to leave, to withdraw. And to some degree, I think that the president's biggest problem right now with Ukraine is that I think the United States and the European Union need to potentially create some sort of way for Putin to save face and withdraw. Uh, I don't think he necessarily will, but the, but to, if he doesn't, if he's cornered, it, it creates a bigger problem. And I think, you know, when you're dealing with foreign policy as a president, I think that you're dealing with much bigger things other than, you know, it's great that these folks are putting up a fight and stuff, but strategically, how do the, if, if Russia really takes a beating here, how does this uh, end? And is there a way for it to end with people saving face? We saw this in the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? So Khrushchev obviously um, stopped what he was doing, but in the end, he was able to save face within his own country because of the missiles that were located, I believe, in Turkey that were withdrawn. So uh, you've got to create an option for him to save face, I think. So uh, getting back to the uh, the rest of the speech, uh, and uh, you as a political analyst and uh, someone who has been on, on Capitol Hill for uh, a length of time, uh, what is the, the political point of, of throwing out the lines that uh, will evoke applause uh, from many, like, you know, eliminate the opioid crisis, cure cancer, raise the minimum wage to $15? What, what's the purpose of that other than you know, a guaranteed applause, at least from one side of the aisle. It's a Christmas gift for everybody who's watching. So everybody who's watching gets something out of the speech. And you're right, I'm going to cure cancer. Yay, okay, we're going to cure cancer. But if you look at the history of State of the Union speeches, you know, 95% of them are, the, again, this grocery list and grocery bag filled with policy things that never actually happen and have no chance of happening. But they do rally the base or rally certain groups and remind those groups that he is on, quote-unquote, your side, and therefore you should like him. And he's fighting for something, even if he's going to lose. You know, so we saw uh, things in the speech yesterday like that. Um, and, you know, it happens on both sides of the aisle. And interestingly, I, I have known members of Congress who dread going to the State Union and don't even want to go because they think that it's just, you know, it's become this sort of puffy thing with a whole bunch of policies that, you know, they basically, this is what you do. You're the White House Chief of Staff, you conduct a poll, you find out all the different things that Americans would like, cure cancer, you know, 
everybody gets an extra hundred thousand bucks, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And they throw it on a, into a speech. And then they go to different liberal groups or conservative groups or members of Congress and find out things that they want to hear. And they're going to, you're going to hear from them in the weeks leading up to the state of the union. So you have to include this and that and the other thing. And you give this speech, rah, rah, rah. But in the end, do a lot of these things really, you know, come to fruition? No, but, you know, it's kind of like a party platform where you say, okay, well, you know, maybe not all of this is going to come to fruition, but this is where we stand. Neil Levesque is with us, the executive director of the New Hampshire Institute of Politics at St. Anselm College. And Neil, regardless of what he said for the first uh, 61 minutes and, you know, 55 seconds of the 62-minute address, the thing that is uh, on social media most, I think, these days, the last for the last couple of days, has been what he said at the end. Go get him. <laughs> Go get him. What, what did he mean by that? I do not know. And <laughs> I don't think anybody knows. And it'll be interesting to see whether the president says um, you know, what he meant by that. I mean, him, I guess, the feature of the speech was Putin, right? But I can't believe who is he telling, go get him. Um, <laughs> you know, the other thing is, is that, you know, hey, look, I'm in politics. I watch all of his press conferences if I can. I watch all these State of the Unions. I analyze everything that's going on. I am not a normal human being. And a lot of the folks that uh, potentially tuned in last night haven't seen the president really give a, 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 a long speech like that recently. And you'll notice that he does slur his words and he, he does mispronunciate things. And it's not once or twice, it's pretty pronounced. But he, I actually thought he was better than some of the press conferences that he's done recently mm-hmm. where he's done that. And to be fair to him, uh, he, it's pretty well known that he was a stutterer when he was growing up. And a lot of the times, uh, from what I've seen and what I've learned about this, is that when you are, are potentially going to stutter something, you, you, you draw out the word, essentially, in your pronunciation, and that may be the, that may be the cause um, of, of that. Um, you know, as, as some people have said, you know, he's no Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton as far as being an order. Um, that's pretty well known, but uh, nevertheless, I thought the speech was delivered pretty well, and, um, and he did better than I think he's, he's done in some of these recent press conferences. And certainly, everybody understood the last three words of the, of the speech. <laughs> Go get him! <laughs> Go get him. <laughs> you know, sometimes, so I give a lot of speeches, not as many as the president, but... Oh, I don't know, Neil. A lot? <laughs> they're not as good, but um, sometimes you're in the room and someone is looking at you saying something to you, you may hear them, but the TV doesn't pick it up. And somebody may have said something, it could be sports related, you know, you just never know. And he's almost responding to that, that individual or what they're saying. And that I think probably is the likely, um, culprit here. 
and it just wasn't picked up on the television. You know, it's a, you know, sometimes you, if you've ever been in that room, you know, it's a far different room than it looks like on television. And um, that happens a lot with people who are giving speeches and you just can't hear what's in the audience. Right. We see that in presidential debates that we've held here at the Institute of Politics or at St. Anselm College. And, you know, you, you, you're, 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 you're seeing this whole thing on television, but somebody in the audience is a friend of his or something and is making a motion and, they, and they're commenting on it. Well, Neil, what, what impact do you see the last 14 months? And, I, and I'll include the, the insurrection in this. What impact is the last 14 months going to have on the uh, upcoming midterm elections, which actually have already started uh, recently in, in Texas? So what impact uh, is it going to have on the midterm? Well, it's interesting because the inflation is what's, I think, hitting Americans right now. And the demoralization from things like COVID, which we thought had gone away, and now we're thinking the same thing. Uh, and some of the other factors out there that are not making people happy. So if you're, if you're doing polling like we do, you'll find that it's into the 60s that people are uh, not happy with the direction of the country. As a result, uh, Biden's numbers, the most recent poll that I've seen nationwide is 37%. I, I think he's about the same here in New Hampshire based on our numbers. So what happens is people on the left and the right will start to say, I'm not happy with what the direction is. So if you were uh, a very liberal, progressive member of Congress yesterday and you heard that speech and you heard nothing about climate change and you didn't hear anything about you know, you heard uh, we need to fund the police, not defund the police, things like that. You may also be somebody who's not happy. And so as we're gearing up for these midterm elections, that Biden number really matters a lot. And whether or not people are are satisfied with the direction of the company, country. And there is a very short period of time between now and those midterm elections. Yeah, very true. So some things could change. There could be an abortion ruling this summer. That really spars a group of people to say, I'm worried about abortion being taken away, the right to have an abortion uh, being taken away, and therefore I'm going to get active in politics and do all kinds of things. That kind of thing could change the direction. But I don't necessarily think that he or the Ukrainian situation changes the direction that I think that the party is headed in, the, the Democratic Party, I think, is is probably, it looks like, going to have a tough time in November. And I think that the, the speech last night didn't necessarily change that. Not to say that they didn't, Americans don't rally behind the fact that the Ukrainians are fighting and all that stuff, just that it may not, um, it may not uh, increase Biden's numbers directly. But, Neil, what do you make of the, the nearly 40 uh, Democrats in Congress that are not going to be running in the, in the House of Representatives anyway for re-election this midterm. So this happens when a party starts to see that, uh, you know, it's not necessarily going to be good and they don't want to be in the minority if that ends up happening. Uh, they say, you know, I've had enough with this. And you'll see that, and it's usually an indicator. So, So the president right now will say, well, I don't, I don't believe in polls. That's what people, when you get bad poll numbers, 
you always send the boss out in front of the television camera saying, uh, we don't believe in polls. The only polls that matter are the ones on election day, you know, those kinds of things. But if the polls are good, there's a lot of things that happen. You raise a lot more money. Uh, you'll start to see people say, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll run again. And so we can, you know, it'll be a fun time in the minor majority, you know, uh, but the fact that so many of them are are saying um, I'm headed to the exit is a very big indicator that they believe the polls too, and that that right now it doesn't look good uh, for the party in power. And it always, you know, this kind of thing happens to the party in power. You know, it's careful what you wish for. Neil Levesque is with us, and we have to take a quick break here, Neil. It is Kale and Company on AM 1450 WKXL 103.9 in the Capital Region, 101.9 FM in the Manchester area, presented by Weed Family Automotive in Concord, and you can check them out at weedfamilyautomotive.com. Welcome back. It's Kale and Company. Our guest today is Neil Levesque, and uh, Neil is the Executive Director of the New Hampshire Institute of Politics at St. Anselm College, and uh, we were talking about the midterms before the break. They've actually uh, started in Texas. We already know that uh, Democrat Beto O'Rourke, a one-time presidential hopeful, uh, will be taking on the incumbent Republican, uh, Governor Greg Abbott, in uh, November. And I know, Neil, we, you know, in uh, other programs, we uh, talked about uh, Beto O'Rourke, and at at one time he was... uh, uh, a real up-and-comer, or so it seemed, in the Democratic Party. He definitely was, and I think that they still see him as a, a bright light, uh, even though he has lost uh, two races now, big races uh, for president and for the U.S. Senate. Um, but I still think that they see him as an articulate member of the party, and I think even though Texas is Texas is a red state, I mean, it is a Republican state. But I think he, you know, he could give Abbott a run. And if anything, it holds Abbott um, down, essentially, and it makes Republicans spend money in a state like Texas rather than spend it in other locations across the country. My guess is, is that if he, if he does not succeed, that um, there'll, there'll be some sort of cabinet or some sort of position that national Democrats will uh, have for him uh, uh, in the future. I, I He's terribly ambitious and he's very eloquent. And you're right, we talked about him because he came into New Hampshire as a potential candidate. That uh, they were, I, I went to see him when he rolled into downtown Manchester. I think he had to get on the roof of a car in order to make the speech in front of all these people that had shown up. So there was a lot of interest in him and he's well known amongst fundraising circles and activists across the country. So he, he still has a future. It's a tough place to win if you're a Democrat. But he definitely has made a name for himself, particularly nationally. And, uh, you know, you do need to have people fighting in different places, even though the odds are, aren't necessarily for them. And they can win. You know, we see that in New Hampshire right now with uh, the, the the House and Senate are potentially going to redistrict the first congressional district where Congressman Chris Pappas, a Democrat, has won for years. 
well, not that many years, but enough. And he, um, if, if, if they add a lot more Republicans to that district, it would be to his disadvantage. But, you know, in, in some ways he's, he's running again and sort of damn the torpedoes. And, uh, it'd be interesting to see if he, if Pappas does win again, even though they redistricted him, uh, to his disadvantage, it would, you know, it really makes him a, a king in New Hampshire politics. Yeah, and uh, New Hampshire will have uh, three congressional seats up for grabs when uh, our midterms get underway. I mean, uh, they're really underway right now with the campaigning uh, going on, which will certainly uh, pick up as, as the months uh, pass. Uh, which New Hampshire Democrat do you think, uh, Neil Levesque, is most vulnerable uh, in November? Well, our polling indicates that people would choose a Republican, generic Republican, over a generic Democrat if they went to the polls. Now, that's that's always like asking uh, my wife, you know, would you rather have dinner with Neil or would you rather have dinner with Tom Brady? You know, <laughs> Tom Brady is the perfect person to have dinner with, you know? So there's always that sort of the perfect candidate thought. And, um, and so in New Hampshire, I think that Democrats have, uh, are are facing a tough tough uphill battle with Governor Sununu being popular and being sort of at the top of the ticket. Um, Hassan has spent and and friends of Senator Hassan groups that uh, support her have spent, I think at least twenty million dollars at this point in the, in the state. That being said, her numbers still. She has more negatives than positives. So, as far as her polling numbers, so it's a tough uphill battle because you know when you spend that kind of money and you're not moving the needle, um, that's troubling too. That being said, she's a longtime New Hampshire person. That's you know she's she's been governor of New Hampshire. She's a U.S. senator. She uh, you know you never count these these folks down. But it's certainly a race that people nationally are looking at. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, uh, of course, there are three uh, announced candidates uh, taking her on. Uh, Senate President Chuck Morse, uh, former Londonderry Town Administrator Kevin Smith, and uh, Brigadier General uh, Donald Bolduck. And uh, as we found out recently in your polling, Neil, at the New Hampshire Institute of Politics, that a most likely uh, a candidate among those three, anyway, to defeat uh, Senator Hassan would be General Bolduck at this point. Well, I would say that that poll was taken really as the two other candidates that you mentioned uh, were starting uh, their campaign. So I think that the proof will be in the pudding as we get towards the June filing period and things even out to see uh, whether or not that changes. At this point, no one is running advertisements. Um, unless they're sort of hidden in the web. Uh, but, you know, television, radio advertisements are not happening for the, any of those candidates. It's sort of a money-making phase. So I think there's a long time between now and that September primary. And we'll wait to see what kind of communications come out of these three camps um, and whether or not it has an impact on voters. But certainly with Governor Sununu not running for the U.S. Senate, the Republican uh, potential to, to win that seat dropped uh, significantly. Um, and so now I think it's an uphill battle uh, to keep the seat. That being said, I just mentioned how 
Hassan's numbers have not been good. She's, they've spent a lot of money on her behalf, and we haven't seen uh, the needle really move too much. And we've seen uh, a lot of General Bolduck uh, recently, not necessarily in, in ads, because I, I don't think he's running them maybe on the Internet, but uh, certainly not on television at this point. But we've seen a lot of him doing analysis both on Fox uh, and on Newsmax. That's right, and he's done a lot of that television from here at the Institute of Politics. We have a television studio, mm-hmm. and that's where he does a lot of this. Um, so we've seen it up front personal. Um, he has, because of his background, been definitely sought after by different news outlets to comment. Some of the things he said uh, are reportedly kind of controversial. Uh, he doesn't sort of shy away from controversial things. Um but he definitely is getting more earned media at this point with the Ukraine situation than some of the other candidates. Now you mentioned the District 1 race uh, involving uh, the incumbent, Chris Pappas. Uh, and uh, I would say that he has some formidable uh, opposition uh, in, that, uh, in that race, uh, in, including Matt Mowers, who ran last time, uh, Gail Huff-Brown, uh, the wife of Scott Brown, and and St. Anselm grad Caroline Levitt, uh, uh, someone you know uh, very, very well, uh, among a, a number of others at this point. So there is no lack of competition for uh, Congressman Pappas. Definitely a crowded field. I think you might have named only a third of the actual right. potential yeah. candidates yeah. in the race. Yeah. Um, and, and they're people who are uh, skilled. These are people, you know, so you mentioned Gail of Brown, she, um, you know, she was a news anchor, so she's been in front of the television camera. She knows how to speak. Uh, Matt Mowers was the candidate who ran against Pappas last time and almost won. Uh, very well-spoken television. And then uh, Carolyn Levitt, who worked for President Trump in the White House press office, deputy press secretary. So clearly there is somebody who knows how to speak uh, and communicate with audiences. This is certainly very interesting to watch. Uh, sometimes when you have a crowded field in a primary like this, it's because people say, you know, this is the year uh, to defeat the Democrat, and therefore there's a big crowded Republican field, or likewise on the other side. Um, but it, it's going to be, uh, I think this is an exciting race uh, to see what's transpiring. It'll be interesting to see whether or not uh, former President Trump weighs in because I think that when you have a crowded field like this, and a lot of Republicans who admire President Trump would say, "Okay, uh, well, who's he like?" And that could that could sway enough votes so that somebody could win a crowded primary for sure. And the reality is, uh, of the three candidates that we that we mentioned, uh, Mr. Mowers and uh, Gail Huff Brown and uh, Caroline Levitt. Uh, they all have ties to Donald Trump. They do. And so the Mar-a-Lago endorsement is what I'm calling it. Um, is going to be crucial in some of these races. And I think it's really crucial in that one. Um, and, you know, I think some people close to former president Trump will tell you that, uh, you know, the person he speaks to last is likely to get the endorsement. And uh, so that's tricky. But they certainly uh, all have a connection uh, to the former president and his administration. So it, it, you know, 
And the other thing is, is that when you work so hard to get the former President Trump's and his supporters' endorsement, will that hurt you in a general election? Is that something that Congressman Pappas is likely to sort of hone in on and say, okay, um, you know, this person's the extreme, uh, and I'm not. And I think that that's where that campaign will potentially go. Now, that's District 1. In District 2, it doesn't appear right now as if uh, Annie Custer has too many challengers out there. Well, there's a a small businessman, uh, Jeff Cousins, who's up in Littleton. He owns a a brewing company, a very successful brewing company, Mm -hmm. and a very popular brewing company up there. He's uh, very, very close to Governor Sununu. And he's mounting a challenge now of, of Custer. Her district is a lot more, there's a lot more Democrats, mm-hmm. uh, registered Democrats than there are Republicans. She's never polled very well. However, she continues to win elections, even though she never really polls that well. So even in a tough year for Democrats, uh, if you have enough people who say, damn the torpedoes, I'm a Democrat, I'm not voting for anything else, despite you know this stuff that's going on or things I don't like, um, she stands a good chance of winning re-election. Um, some of the towns like Hanover, I mean, it, I think it's five to one Democrats to Republicans in Hanover. Uh, so it can be a pretty, pretty tough place to, you never want to post that as the first town to come in on election day. Very true. Very true. And of course we do have a gubernatorial race. Uh, the incumbent, the aforementioned uh, John Sununu uh, is running. Chris Sununu. Uh, Chris, Chris, yes, Chris Sununu. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I always have to I, make I that, that differentiation I, around here because yeah. John Sununu, Governor John Sununu, does a lot of TV from here. Yeah. And he's a friend of our institute. Yeah. So you have to really differentiate. Yes, you do. When you're on the phone or whatever and you're being uh, respectful by referring to them both by their title. Yes. But uh, Chris Sununu, the incumbent, is is running, and, and who's opposing him at this point? Well, State Senator Tom Sherman out of Rye is exploring a bid to run for governor. He's been a vocal opponent of the governor. He's a doctor, and he's um, quarreled with the governor on some of his response to COVID. Um, very nice man. Um, been in the State Senate, very popular in his own district. Um, so he potentially is going to take on Governor Sununu. Um, you know, a lot of people say, well, it's a, it's a fool's errand to take on Sununu because he's popular, et cetera, et cetera. You know, in this business, anyone can be beaten in politics, and they have to come out and, and make their case to voters, even if, you know, they've been on the ballot a whole bunch of times and they've been in office a whole bunch of times. So, um, and I think Governor Sununu would be the first one to tell you that. So they'll make their cases. I think it's going to be exciting to watch this and have different people sort of say, this is what I stand for, and I hope that you support me. Um, Sununu, of course, people know who he is because he's been doing these 3 o'clock every afternoon Mm -hmm. COVID updates for two years. Right. And you can't, can't, (laughs) I would venture to bet that he has 100% name ID in Hampshire. People know who he is and generally like him. He's a very, you know, off the... You know, he speaks off the cuff. I've, on very rare occasions have I ever seen him write a uh, or read a 
prepared speech, which is actually very refreshing, um, particularly for somebody like me that has to sit in the back of the room at all these speeches. And, you know, you read a prepared speech and, you know, you kind of guess that maybe they didn't write it or their staffers did. And, you know, if, if you can't really sort of speak off the cuff about the things that you believe in and how you want to lead, uh, it just it's, it becomes kind of complicated and awkward for the audience. Yeah. So it is a refreshing thing. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, in, in a recent uh, Washington Post uh, story, uh, Governor Sununu was ninth in the top 10 Republican hopefuls for uh, president in 2024. Do you foresee uh, Chris Sununu uh, pursuing a, a presidential bid in 2024? Well, I disagree with that story. I mean, the fact that I, I think he's much higher than number nine. I think he's very high up in this. Now, let me just say a couple of things. We're in a small state, and people always say, well, you know, this isn't Texas. But Sununu is a very talented communicator, and he does have a very good story to tell. He led through COVID. A lot of people, you know, he's probably one of the only governors that really remained very popular during his leadership through COVID and continues in that popularity today. The second part of his story is if you look, think about Republican core values, meaning conservative, fiscally conservative values, sort of what some people call freedom type values, and you look at his record, he has a story to tell on that. So I think that that is why I don't necessarily see that he is so ambitious that he's out there trying to drum up uh, a campaign for president because he's running for reelection. And I think that that's what he's focused on is being governor of New Hampshire. But I see and hear from people I know across the country and I can see it on television when I see him giving a speech in California or Florida or Nevada, um, He's, uh, he's being invited to speak to these groups, and he's being invited by national media organizations because they like what they hear, and in, that's likely to continue, and probably I think there'll probably be a lot of people across the country who say, this is the guy that you know can win, and he's got a good conservative message, and he's very, very good communicator. So... Um, I'm I'm very uh, interested in what happens to Sununu in the future. He's a very, if you study politicians, he's very different than a lot of other politicians. It's what you say, what you get. You can't sort of convince him of something that he doesn't believe in or he doesn't think is in the right interest of people who stay in New Hampshire. Um, he's very committed to that. Um, and if you study his background, too, he's fascinating. Sort of, you know, he went to MIT. Yeah. I didn't get in. Um, he went to MIT, very smart, very, very smart. You figure that out right off the bat. But, you know, when he graduated from MIT, he said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to hike the entire Appalachian mountain trail. And he went all the way, did the whole AT, I think it's 3000 miles. And, you know, you, your basic things are how are you going to drink water the next day? And what are you going to eat? And that's what you focus on for months and months. It takes a certain kind of guts and sort of courage to, to do that kind of thing. And, and he did, I, I find it one of the most interesting parts of his background. Yeah. Um, so it'll be a fun, 
thing to watch as we get towards 2024 as to whether or not he's not afraid of Trump, you know, but he's not standing there trying to necessarily insinuate him. He's, he's flame his anger. He's just not standing there trying to, uh, be, be, uh, subject to whatever Trump says. So yeah. it's very interesting. It will be Neil, anything, uh, coming up at the Institute that we should know about? Well, now that we're sort of getting at the tail end of the COVID situation, we're firing up our politics and eggs. We just had General Petraeus two weeks ago, but we're, we, we are firing it up. We have Chris Christie in line in March. whole series of different speakers, including Robert Putnam. He's an author you really ought to check out. He's one of the country's uh, foremost thinkers, particularly on poverty. Um, and we'll obviously have a whole series of debates, and we look forward to the June filing period as well and highlighting some of the candidates that come forward. Outstanding. Neil, as always, thanks so much for uh, spending some time with us today on Kale & Company. I truly appreciate it. Thank you very much, Ken, and thanks to everybody in our great state of New Hampshire listening and being a part of the show. Thank you. Thanks, Neil. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Neil Levesque, the executive director of the New Hampshire Institute of Politics at St. Anselm College. We'll take a break. Kale & Company continues on AM 1450 WKXL 103.9 in the Capital Region, 101.9 FM in the Manchester area. Welcome back. It is Kale & Company. Great to have you along with us here on WKXL. Kale & Company presented by Weed Family Automotive. Conveniently located at 124 Store Street in Concord, you can Call for an appointment, 603-225-7988, or you can do it online at weedfamilyautomotive.com. Well, uh, Major League Baseball players have rejected, as you probably know by now, and I quote here, the best and final offer to end the sports lockout before the league's deadline to avoid canceled games. Major League Baseball made its last offer about uh, 90 minutes before a self-imposed a deadline on a Tuesday. Uh, the league has threatened to cancel opening day on March 31st without a deal by then. In fact, the commissioner said the first two series of the regular season, which was set to start on March 31st, will be canceled and the games will not be made up and the players will not be paid for those missed games. So still, it would appear that uh, both sides are very very far apart uh, in their negotiations. And, uh, well, uh, baseball is now on the uh, precipice of uh, losing regular season games to a work stoppage for the first time since 1995. So uh, there you go. That is the deal with Major League Baseball. And, uh, you know, it's the millionaires, the players against the billionaires, the owners. And uh, whose side are you on? We'll take a break. It is Kale and Company heading down the home stretch. Thanks for being with us today on WKXL and NHTalkRadio.com. Welcome back. It is Kale and Company. And uh, we are just about out of time for this uh, segment uh, of the show. We, we mentioned the uh, Major League Baseball lockout and the fact that uh, it uh, is going to impact Major League Baseball regular season games. 
Here's the thing, folks. We have minor league baseball in our own backyard, which will not, I repeat, will not be impacted by the lockout. Uh, The New Hampshire Fisher Cats will open their season at home on April 12th as scheduled. I mean, unless we have a snowstorm on April 12th. But otherwise, there will be minor league baseball all over the minor leagues double a triple a single a rookie leagues that will not stop although no one who is on the uh, 40-man rosters of an organization will be allowed uh, to take part because they're members of the players association we thank you for listening we thank neil levesque of the new hampshire institute of politics for being with us on this edition of kale and company presented by weed family automotive of concord